Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, in the lead-up to Seattle's mayoral election on November 7th, the candidates have been crisscrossing the city to debate and discuss their credentials. There have been moments of geniality and tension. Seattle University hosted a conversation with contenders Carrie Moon and Jenny Durkin. The tone was civil and heated at turns. If you haven't made up your mind about who to vote for, you may find the tipping point you're looking for here. The candidates were questioned by Larry Hubble, director of Seattle University's Institute of Public Service, multimedia journalist Joni Balter, and crosscut journalist David Croman. This event took place at Seattle University's Piggott Auditorium on October 16th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, Seattle University President Stephen Sundborg introduces the discussion. I would like to take a moment to commend our two mayoral candidates for the tone of their campaign, for the respect that they've shown one another, uh, for how much they've focused on the issues, and how informative this has been for all of us as citizens of Seattle. We really appreciate the way in which they model this kinds of discourse, and it's a great uh, testimony and a mentorship to our students at Seattle University and the Institute of Public Service. Both of them are public servants. We're grateful for their service to all of us to have the courage to step forth and to provide this kind of leadership that we need. Uh, This is important for us at Seattle University because the students who choose Seattle University choose us because they're involved in issues, and particularly political issues. They're interested in community service, and they're very interested in both people and also in policy. So having this kind of a conversation at Seattle University fits in with, with what our mission is. The last part of a mission says we empower leaders for a just and humane world. And indeed, uh, that's what uh, these two are. They're people who believe both in a world that is just and a world that is humane, particularly in Seattle. So we're grateful to them, and we hope that this will be an informative session for our students, both as citizens of Seattle and for the wider Seattle University community. And now let me please welcome to the stage to introduce our two candidates, the Dean of Seattle University's College of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Public Service is a part of this college. Please welcome uh, Dean David Powers. Thank you, Father Steve. Uh, Thank you, everyone, and welcome. I want to take this opportunity as we begin to have this important conversation about leadership in our city to acknowledge and thank Father Steve Sundberg for his 20 years as president, 20 years and counting of Seattle University. Thank you. So we're proud to host this today uh, at the College of Arts and Sciences with the Institute for Public Service uh, in collaboration with Crosscut. Uh, As Father Steve said, uh, this event is closely aligned with the mission of Seattle University and with what we try to do with our students and train our students toward critical thinking, reflection, and discernment, uh, really to help address and tackle the issues of our world today in our city, in our country. Uh, in our environment and all across the world uh, with critical thinking, discernment, and action. Um, So we're very happy to have you all here. And I'd like to now introduce the candidates. Ginny Durkin is a former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington. An appointee of President Barack Obama, Ginny was the first openly gay person to hold this office and serve from 2009 to 2014. 
During her tenure, Ginny formed a civil rights unit with the U.S. Attorney's Office, which brought hate crime prosecutions and has worked to protect a range of civil rights, from fair housing to language access to the employment rights of veterans. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the Warren G. Magnuson Memorial Award and the Jaswant Singh Kalra Award for Social Justice. A Seattle native, Ginny graduated from the University of Notre Dame and attended law school at the University of Washington. She lives in Seattle with her partner and their two sons. Carrie Moon is an operations engineer, civic leader, and urban planner who has spent the last 20 years working with the city of Seattle and numerous community groups to build a city that's accessible and affordable to all. Carrie helped manage her family's 100-person manufacturing business and led the transition to an employee ownership model. She provided professional planning and urban design through her own business in Seattle and received the Municipal League Citizen of the Year Award and Real Changes Change Agent of the Year. Carrie has an operations engineering degree from the University of Michigan and a master's in landscape architecture from urban and urban design from the University of Pennsylvania. Carrie lives in Pike Place Market neighborhood with her husband, Mark, and two teenage children. Uh, thank you all for joining us tonight. I'll now hand it over to Professor Larry Hubble, the director of the Institute for Public Service. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, David. Uh, let me just introduce the other questioners we have here. We have David Croman from Crosscut and Joni Balter, a multimedia journalist. Give me right? a funny look. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm also supposed to read this before I go any further. And that is, Seattle University does not support or oppose any political candidates. The views expressed are those of the candidates only. The Institute of Public Service is sponsoring this event. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Um, and I'd also like to tell you, please, if you have your calendars ready, I want, you to t I want to tell you about two very important events we're having. This is the first, we have three conversations a year. This is the first one. The next one might be of interest to you. Uh, we have Bill Ruckelshaus coming on January 11th. If, you, if you're old enough, some people may not know who Bill Ruckelshaus is, but he was the, um, one of the victims of the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, back in 1973. He was the former uh, Deputy Attorney General of the United States and was fired by Nixon. Uh, he is going to come, and we can't announce yet who the other people are, but there will be also very interesting people. And uh, it will be on January 11th, and the title of the uh, presentation will be Possible Impeachment and the Future of Our Democracy. <laughs> so put it on your calendar. The other event we have, which is shortly after that, it's going to be February 2nd, is something we're, we're sponsoring with Crosscut, and it will be in the Conley Gym, I think, right? Location to be determined. Yeah, we think it's going to be there, but it's January or February 2nd, and we're, we're right now we have confirmed the governor of, um, our governor, right? Our Jay Inslee. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and we, we may be getting two or three other governors, too, from the Pacific Coast, so you can guess who they are, and um, we're... <laughs> So it should be a big event. It's going to be on climate change. So please also put that on your calendar. So uh, let me just describe a little bit of the format of this uh, conversation. It's not really a debate. Is that we will be asking questions for the next 40 minutes or so. And then we'll open it up to the floor. Uh, we have passed out cards. So if you'd like to ask a question, please get a card. And uh, Lindsay, where are you? Somewhere out there? Um, anyways, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that she's passing out cards if you don't have one already. So uh, please do that. And when you're done with those, pass those to the end of the Yes. Ad. Right. 
Okay, so I'd like to extend my thanks to all of you for being here. We are loving doing these events and they're, they're sort of getting more exciting and you know more people are knowing about them and coming and we love that. Uh, number two, uh, the candidates have been given challenge cards. I just want you to know this is coming so that they get two challenge cards um, each. They are to make their challenge at the end of someone's sentence, not in the middle of it. Uh, <laughs> Does that happen a lot? Um, so each gets, four, the challenger gets 45 seconds to make the challenge, and the other person gets 45 seconds to respond to that, and that'll happen as many as four times, two times uh, at the direction of each of you folks. Uh, we love your energy in the room. Uh, it will help our event go much, much better if you don't clap after each answer. You save your applause for the end. Uh, because that way we don't have to stop and pause it to all our great questions uh, between every answer, because that sometimes interrupts these things. And so, ready to go, first question. Look how thick that stack you guys all have. Aren't yeah, but it's, but it's big type, so I wouldn't worry about it that right. much. Um, we don't want to run out of questions. Is that we don't want to run out of questions. We have, we, have, we have extra stuff, don't worry. So we'll start with you, Ms. Moon. The city of Seattle has more than 11 million 11,000 employees, 11 million. What? what in your background would give voters confidence that you can manage an operation as complicated as that? In the introduction, they said that you've managed a company that had, I've read 80, I've read 100. So how can you give voters confidence that you can manage something as complicated as the city of Seattle? That's a great question. That's loud. I am, I have worked in the private sector, I have worked in the public sector, and I've worked in the nonprofit and advocacy arena. So I understand how all three of those sectors have to come together to build a great city, because we all are in this together. We all have the obligation and the responsibility to make sure our city works well, and I understand how all the pieces fit together. More importantly, I've worked for 20 years with city departments in this city. So I've worked with STOT and the Parks and Department of Neighborhoods. I've been on the Design Commission. I've been on so many advisory boards and advisory committees that I can't even count them. I have worked deeply with many of the departments in the city and council and elected leaders. So I know how things happen. I know how the city runs. But I think most importantly, when I was an engineer, a lot of the things I worked on were about how do you build better systems to achieve shared goals together. And so my brain goes towards how do we set up the right structure in the mayor's office to have transparency and ethics, but also to have a really strong professional expertise in the mayor's office connected to the departments to make sure we are tapping the potential of the 11,000 people who work in the city as public servants who really want to be the most effective, best managed, best governed city in America. And so I've already started setting up that structure. I have a transition team in place that has already defined how the whole system will work and the org chart, and we're starting to think about how to populate that. But I think it goes towards how seriously I take good leadership to deliver the essential public services of this city. Ms. Durkin, pretty much the same question with a few different numbers. Uh, you manage the U.S. Attorney's Office, 150 employees, as I read. But the city's bigger, clearly, and it's more complicated. So how can you give voters confidence that you're really qualified to manage this complicated place? Thank you for the question. And it's such a great evening to be here. And thank you, Father Sundberg, and all the students and everyone else for being here. 
I think this really sets apart what this election is about and what distinguishes Kerry Moon and I the most, is if you look at our positions on things, we have identified pretty much the same problems. We have different approaches, but her experience is one of a planner. My experience is one of not just plans, but getting them done. And so when I was United States Attorney, not only did I have to manage the two offices I had, both in Seattle and Tacoma, but I was also involved in a whole range of things. My jurisdiction as U.S. Attorney ran from the Canadian border to the Oregon border, everything west of the Cascades. I had to work with elected officials, sheriffs, and elected prosecutors in all of the counties in western Washington and with community groups in western Washington. And the problems that they faced varied very much. The problems over in the Kitsap Peninsula were very different. At the time I was U.S. Attorney, there was a raging methamphetamine problem. Here in the city core, there was a different problem. Having to reallocate your resources among all those issues and organize all the federal agencies, both on the civil side of the house and the criminal side of the house. And then on top of that, I was really fortunate. Eric Holder asked me to serve on his att attorney general's advisory committee. So three weeks after I was confirmed, I was going back to Washington, D.C. for about a week, every five weeks and helping on the overall strategy for the Department of Justice on how we could do meaningful criminal justice reform, how we could improve cybercrime, how we could return the Civil Rights Division to be that thing that is one of the most important parts of the Department of Justice. So in looking at a city, one thing that's good news is it's much more geographically limited. Um, there are more employees, but knowing how to get in, motivate those employees, but by department by department, make sure we're pulling in the same direction, getting things done, and delivering results. Seattle is long on process, long on talking. We need action. We got to get some of these problems underway and fixed, because if we don't, all of us will be sitting here four years from now still talking about them. I'm ready. I swing at the first pitch. <laughs> so I, I'd just like to point out that I launched my campaign for mayor not with a list of problems that we all see and are perplexed by, but with specific concrete solutions. Because we are smart, we, are, we care about our future of our city, we are ready to have the conversation about what's not working and what are better approaches. So I started my campaign with solutions and have continued to, the ref to refine them, working directly with community groups and other civic leaders. So I guess my challenge is, what is your experience working with the city beyond the police department? Because this is complicated. The challenges we're facing are about urban growth, are about transportation planning, are about homelessness, are about housing affordability and the macroeconomics of the housing market. What is your experience with any of those things? I know you have a great career as a lawyer, but I don't see how that applies to running a city. That's great, because you know, when we were, when I was US attorney and before that, I had a 30 year uh, history of working on issues related to the city. And every one of those cases, I was fortunate because I was able to represent great clients, sometimes in their greatest point of need, but it resulted in big changes right in the city. I was fortunate enough to represent one of the families, for example, that who's had a, a, a person who died in the Peng Warehouse fire, a firefighter. That litigation ended up changing the safety rules for every firefighter and how fires are fought in this city. It was a really important thing to protect them and protect every home in the city from fire. I represented a woman whose partner died in her basement when her house flooded. 
We litigated that, but the litigation was all about how did we make sure this city did better by her and by everyone and it never happened again? It resulted in a completely different way in treating runoff water in the Madison Valley and building a new facility to treat that because they'd been ignoring the problems for years. We had to dig in, get records dating back 80 and 100 years to show that there used to be a creek running through that until the city dammed it. So you go sector by sector by sector. There is problems in this city that I've been working on besides police. Um, and, and part of it has been an, a real honor to do it because I've been able to represent people in this city with real problems that affected them, but they wanted to make sure that we didn't just treat it as one case, but we really made things better for everyone. You look at the drug court, the mental health court, things like that in the city came out of work I had the honor of doing. So building off of the management question, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in some of the reporting I've done, I've, I've met a lot of city employees who are pretty unsatisfied, and I don't want to say that this is in every department, but in some sp specific departments. Um, I, I'm curious, I imagine that both of you have been meeting with some city employees. I'm curious if you're hearing something similar um, and sort of how you would dis distinguish how you reach those sort of more career city employees as a mayor and um, how, how you can actually uh, reach those people. Jenny. You missed Durkin. All right. Um, we're going with just Mrs.? All right. Misery. Um, I, it's a great question because I have been meeting with people in the city and all of the different departments throughout this campaign and before it and have had friends who have worked in the city off and on through three mayors. Um, we have, it's been a really difficult time for city employees for a number of reasons. The first reason is is that we have grown so rapidly. It has put stress on everything in this city, and we weren't ready for it. None of our infrastructure was ready. Our roads weren't ready, our social service infrastructure wasn't ready, and we see that with the horrible problem, the homelessness. Nothing was ready, and where does that all end up? It ends up on the creaking, creaking resources of city employees. And so they have been scrambling. And then you had to that the demoralizing impact of having a change of leadership over and over again. So I was very proud to sit down and talk to a number of city employees across departments. And then after they did that, they endorsed my campaign because they believe that I can give the kind of leadership that gives both purpose and direction, but also honors them in the work they can do, which I think is the tricky thing for a leader to do, to make sure you set that vision, you empower people, but you hold them accountable. And the only good thing that comes out of government, every good thing that comes out of government, is done by the people that work there. And I learned that when I was US attorney. I mean, you, the, the work that people were doing through one of the most difficult federal budget times ever. I had to send my office home two times closing it down. Um, and, but be, continue to work with them and get them motivated to do their job every day is really important. So, you know, I, I live downtown, I spend a lot of time walking places, and the number of times someone's jumped out of a Seattle City Light truck or an SPU truck or just stopped me on the street to say, you have to win. You don't know how bad it is over here. So yes, I've heard that the city departments are, are fairly dissatisfied and demoralized. And I think the problem is that the last mayor we've had uh, just really was not, didn't think about management. He'd never led a big organization. He never thought about how to build an organization that feels empowered and fulfilled and energized and listened to and appreciated. 
And every place I've ever worked, I've been told, you're the best boss I ever had because I listen to people, because I build shared commitment to a shared goal, and I empower people, and I hold them accountable. I'm a very transparent, low-ego person. I want us all to feel like we succeeded together, and so that's how I operate as a leader. And so I'm ready to bring that to City Hall because I think you know the criticism I've heard basically is that the mayor's office is like the head is detached from the body. There's just not good communication channels. There's not trust and respect. People from the city departments feel like they have a lot to offer. They have plans, they have white papers, they have proposals, and they bring them to the mayor's office and they just disappear. And so I think they feel demoralized, not listened to, not appreciated, and I'm ready to set up a management structure that is ready to listen, ready to collaborate, and ready to build the right kind of structure so we can hit the ground running and implement bold solutions by working together with city employees. Ms. Durkin, um, given the large number of endorsements and contributions. I gotta go first again. What's that? I gotta go first again. Yeah, we're, we'll, we're gonna switch them around, really. <laughs> we were very conscious about that. Uh, given the large number of endorsements and contributions you re you've received, many people perceive you as being the establishment candidate. I wonder if you deny that or do you embrace that? I do neither. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at the support that each of our campaigns has gotten, I think right now it is a record for the number of individual contributors to a campaign to my office. Over 3,000 people. Carrie Moon has, I think, several hundred, but the biggest contributor to her campaign is herself from her own personal wealth. So I am very, I'm honored that that many people are willing to support my campaign and that my, my support goes from not just business, but to small business and to most of the large labor organizations in the city. And not just to the labor organizations themselves, but their workers. So if you look at the campaign, it's nurses, it's dock workers, it's mental health providers. It is those people, firefighters. It is the people who really every day show up to make this city a great place. And I have always throughout my career tried to be a person that can bring people together and tackle tough problems. And with the issues we're facing today, if you don't have a mayor that can engage both business, whether it's big business or small business, and the workers, we're not gonna be able to tackle it. And I think that's the greatest asset that I'm bringing here. And frankly, it's one that I think that gives me an advantage both as being a mayor and an advantage of being a candidate. Because we have to show that we're different from Washington, D.C. Nothing good is coming out of Washington, D.C. All we see is division, fighting, and bad things from the president. A mayor's got to be better than that. Ms. Moon, on the other hand, many people perceive you as being the anti-establishment candidate. And uh, in fact, you, I believe you actually celebrated the fact that you did not receive an endorsement from the chamber. I and did. I'm just wondering, um, how will that work for the city? You're gonna have to work with business. So we have a problem in our city. Power and influence is held in too few hands. There are people who have access to City Hall, who get listened to, who have a seat at the table, and the vast majority of us don't. And we have watched how they're running the city, growing wealth inequality, not addressing the housing affordability crisis, not addressing the systemic racism in our city, and folks have had enough. I think they're ready to say, that's not working, 
We need to share power across race and class and gender. We need to build better collaboration to communities, especially the leaders from communities of color and social justice leaders who've been proposing solutions to build better equity into our city and been denied or ignored. So I think people are ready for change. And yes, I'm the candidate for change, but it's 100% constructive. It is 100% towards building a better city, a more inclusive, welcoming, diverse, affordable city that's committed to shared prosperity for everyone. So insiders who are doing well are afraid of change because they don't know how they're going to win in the new environment. But those of us who are struggling, who are slipping beneath the surface, who have been pushed out, whose communities have been gentrified and displaced, are desperate for change. And that's the candidate I am. I'm trying to pull folks together who care about social justice, racial justice, affordability, how do we get our economy on track to build prosperity for everyone, not just the lucky few? And I am building a coalition across all those folks who care about those issues for a different kind of leadership in our city. And it is an uphill climb. I've had to make my case one at a time to community groups and individuals. I'm not a professional politician with access to all the donor lists from Mayor Murray, but I am doing this one voter at a time and ready to lead a different kind of a mayor's office. We have a challenge. So I've listened to this same talk over and over again. And what I hear is, if I become mayor, this is what I'll do. And part of me wants to say, when did you get woke? Because I've been working on these issues for 20 and 30 years in this city, as as many people in this room. You know, I was walking in the halls of Olympia and pushing as hard as I can to get LGBTQ rights, non-discriminatory marriage equality. You were never there. When we were fighting to get some treatment alternatives instead of incarceration in the 90s and the war on drugs, we had hearings, we were pushing for it, it was affecting communities of color. You lived here, but you weren't there either. And then when we were fighting on police reform in this city, everyone in this room, if you were here, we saw video after video of usually young men of color getting abused by the police and John T. Williams killed in the street. And when we did our investigation in the, in, the, in the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office, we had hearings during the investigation phase and listened to community throughout this city, hearing after hearing, meeting after meeting. You didn't show up for any of them. If those issues were so important, why weren't you there then? Why does it start now? That's a really interesting way to phrase it because I have been doing a lot of work with communities most recently through coalitions around how do we build an economy that builds prosperity for everybody, working with the Roosevelt Institute in New York and a dozen local organizations that's really focused on economic equality, worked on issues around housing affordability, doing deep dive and setting a new debate around how do we solve this problem, working on getting money out of politics through helping shape Honest Election Seattle and shaping a statewide effort to get money out of politics, working on investing in transit instead of a bypass highway, working on great parks that are inclusive and important to a functional democracy. So I've been working on constructive issues in this city for 20 years, and you can see from my endorsements, Democracy for America, Our Revolution, several labor unions, the teachers, the King County Democrats, 
that I have deep relationships in community, maybe not the same, I haven't been doing the same work as you, no, but I have deep relationships in community and a lot of trust and support from the social justice community and the racial justice community in this city. So I'm proud of my credentials, proud of my support and my relationships and I'm not new to this. This has been building over time over the last 20 years. And, and for, for both of you sort of, again, building off of that question a little bit about community, um, both of you are doing quite well financially have stable housing in a city that where income inequality is, is so hyper-focused. How do you assure people who are struggling, and renters specifically, that you will have their back? And we'll start with you, Ms. Moon. So I have money now, but I want to be really clear, this is new for me, that I grew up in a very middle-class family. My father got fired again and again. We moved again and again because we needed to get a new job. There were nine people in my family, so we were really frugal and we were not wealthy. My family had a business in 19, early 70s to mid 90s that did really well. We shared profits, we shared decision authority, we shared ownership with the employees, but we all did really well. So I spent most of my 40s as a single mom struggling, having anxiety attacks in the middle of the night, not sure how I was gonna make my, my bills every month working on a nonprofit salary. So I understand what it's like to struggle, not really struggle, because I still had parents and family who I could call on for help if I needed it. But I am committing to use the wealth that came from my family business that I helped earn towards building a better future city. I've spent the last five years 100% in public service to this city because I feel a tremendous responsibility because of this wealth to invest my time, my energy, and my own resources in making a better city. And I ask you, if you were lucky like me and inherited some money, wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you invest in making a better world? So I'm not ashamed of the fact that I have money now that I'm investing in this race, that I invested in a lot of nonprofit activism that I was involved in. I think that's the right thing to do when you are lucky enough to have that kind of privilege and that kind of um, resource to be able to invest it back into making a better world. I think it's a really great question, David, and I think the number one thing that people can look to to know what kind of mayor you'll be or what kind of person you'll be in any job is what you've done before. And so like Carrie, you know, I grew up in a big family. Um, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And as a kid, I never dreamed I'd have the resources I have now. And I recognize that, you know, I have been so honored and privileged to be able to have the opportunity to go to college, to go to law school, to have jobs where I could work and accumulate the kind of wealth that I have working over 30 years. Um, but if you look at how I spend my time, I think that's the value statement. And I think it goes back again to, over the years, what I've done for the state and for the city and for the people I've had the honor of representing, always thinking about how do we make sure the little guy has a shot. You know, as a, as a criminal defense lawyer and a plaintiff's lawyer, I was always representing the person who was either accused by the state or the person who was fighting to get an equal shot. And as U.S. Attorney, my role there, while as a prosecutor, I think what you can look at is I also set up a civil rights division. And we went from having one civil rights case to almost 100 today. And we worked on things like housing discrimination to make sure that people really could get an apartment in rent. And we would hold those landlords accountable when they did discriminate. We did hate crimes prosecutions. We really dug down to protect people 
who couldn't protect themselves. And as mayor, every single day, I am gonna go to work and say, how do we help and make sure everybody's got a shot in this town? Because they don't right now. They don't. We have growing wage disparity. Seattle is too unaffordable. And the south part of our city has not shared in the prosperity. And we need to change that, and the mayor's got to lead. As we all know, Amazon has announced a brilliant... Brilliant? It's more brilliant if you use the mic. But a brilliant um, <laughs> nationwide search for HQ2. And clearly not in Seattle. They let the cat out of the bag last week on that. Uh, but now, roughly at the same time, we have two Seattle City Council members who are proposing a head tax, also called, on KUOW at least, the Amazon tax. Is this the right way, Ms. Durkin, to speak to Amazon, who are saying very clearly, uh, in their own way, that they think Seattle City government is not that business friendly? So I think that this whole head tax issue in some ways is catnip for journalists. But if you look well, at the we have to right, you know. But if you look look <laughs> it came out of but it came out of a whole proposal, right? Councilmember um, O'Brien proposed, here's the things we want to get done around homelessness, and here's how we think you have to pay for them. For me, what I look at first is the things he proposed line up almost exactly with what I've been proposing. And if you're a mayor, so I'm looking at it from not just the candidates, but if I was the mayor, I would say, hallelujah, because the hardest part is done. The hardest part for executive and legislative branch is to agree on the policy. How you pay for it, there are lots of things. So going back to the head taxes, uh, yeah. I think what we have to be very careful about are two things. One is small business, because right now we have super regressive taxes for business. The B&O tax in Washington state is based on the gross amount that a business makes, not their profit. So if you're a business that has, generates a lot of revenues, but you don't make any money, you get really hurt. And the head tax would be on top of that and start telling employee, employers, look, not only are we gonna charge you on the gross, we're gonna start telling you not to hire people because we're gonna charge you for every person you hire. So I think we have to look more deeply at it and look at whether the, you can do an approach that gets at what you want, which is the truly high-level employees, which is, I think, what Mike O'Brien wants. What he's proposed doesn't get us there. The second thing is on Amazon. I think this whole thing, and are we good for business, not good for business, if we fix the problems we have, which I think we can fix, if we can turn the dial on affordability and homelessness and transportation, we will make Seattle that place people still want to live and the place that businesses want to be. And Amazon and other companies like them, whether they start here, which is how we start our companies, will love to be in Seattle. So whether it's for Amazon or not, we got to do it for ourselves. we got to fix these problems, and if we fix the problems, we will have the businesses we need. What do you think, Ms. Moon? Head tags? So I really applaud council member Harris Talley, don't forget about her, Jenny, and Mike O'Brien, who are proposing a bold tax that generates revenue to fund the services we know we need to fund. So it's a starting point. I think the, the I don't think the math is quite right yet because we have to make sure that we are only capturing the large businesses and you know the small retails Retailers who have high sales volume but low profit margins are going to get caught in this trap, so I don't think we have the numbers right. We need to figure out a way to get just 
the big businesses that are doing really well, but we absolutely have to start developing more progressive taxes so that the wealthy are paying their fair share for the infrastructure and the services we all need to thrive. We have the most regressive tax system in the country in our state. We've got to do what we can in Olympia and what we can at the city level, and I applaud the council for proposing a higher earner's income tax and proposing this tax on business because we absolutely have to develop more revenue sources to invest in what we know we want to be as a city. So for Amazon, I think they're just being practical. I'm not reading into that, this that Seattle's somehow bad for business. Their very first criteria in their RFP was, do you have a site for us? We don't, full stop. We do not simply have the space for growth. And we have not caught up with the last 10 years of growth because the city hasn't planned well. We haven't been able to keep up in schools. We've added 10,000 kids to the school system, but only three new schools when we should have added 20. We haven't kept up with transit. We haven't kept up with housing affordability. So let's get to work keeping up with that, that infrastructure that we need to provide as a city. And Amazon's still here. They're still continuing to grow here. They just announced they're gonna build another building with 6,000 employees in it. So it's not like they're leaving and we failed. It's just that they recognized practically we don't have room for the pace of growth that they intend to grow at and it's sensible for them to have a second headquarters. I'm gonna squeeze in a couple questions into one. Um, <laughs> both, both police related. Um, over the last couple of weeks, first, um, Mayor Burgess, City Attorney Holmes, then the Community Police Commission, and then the Department of Justice all essentially lobbied the fe federal judge, James Robart, to find the city of Seattle in full and effective compliance with the consent decree, um, sort of mandating that the police department be overhauled. So the first, question, first part of the question is, do you think he should make that finding of full and effective compliance? And then the sort of most rampant rumor in Seattle right now is about Kathleen O'Toole, Chief Kathleen O'Toole's departure. Um, I imagine you've been thinking about people that you would want to potentially replace her with if were she to leave. Who are those people? Um, and let's start with uh, Ms. Moon. So I believe that we all know that the reform process goes on beyond when the consent decree has ended. And I will leave it up to the Community Police Commission and the experts to de define when we switch from this phase to the next phase. I will work with them, but I want to listen to them and understand their logic. Because as I understand it, until the contract is done and signed, there's still room for backsliding on the consent decree. So I want to make sure we get the details right on the contract being done and the consent decree being finalized. But we all know that reform will go on and on and on. We need to keep training in anti-bias policing. We need to keep training in alternatives to use of force, de-escalation techniques, how to help people in crisis. We need to change the culture of the police department to go from a system where it feels very militaristic, back to protect and serve and be out in community. That means changing management and how we train managers, both at this precinct level and farther up. And we need to be able to fire and hire people. Part of the problem is that we have, you know, we don't, we, we know that there are police officers who are not doing a job that's considered high quality, and it's so hard to fire them. 
that we are continuing to limp along with these same folks that shouldn't be there. And we know we need to be able to hire folks from community, culturally competent, who can build trusting relationships in the community, but there's too many barriers, including the culture of the police department, that are preventing that from happening. So it's really complicated. There's a lot of changes we need to keep making, but I am committed to working with the Community Police Commission, which is a center driving these transformations that we need, doing oversight, having all the resources and access to information and authority they need. I'm committed to keeping them at the center of this and continuing to push this. Regarding the police chief, I have not started looking for a new police chief yet, but if she leaves, I definitely will make that a top priority because we need someone who can change the culture of that organization, is an excellent manager, and ready to keep going on all the reforms we need because we all know we want our police department to be the least violent most effective, most skillful police department in the country, and we need a really strong leader to help make that happen. So the people may not understand, if the judge determines that there's full and effective compliance, what that starts is a trigger for a two-year period under which the city has to prove that they're remaining in full and effective compliance. So I, I actually was one of the people who signed the consent decree and signed the memorandum that, com that created the Community Police Commission. I think that we, I would probably side with the city on this with one exception. I think we need to take a deep look at whether the discipline system that is in place in the Seattle Police Department that allows, for example, a woman who has threatened a man and said he, you know, threatened her with a golf club when he clearly didn't and had racist language on a Facebook post and was properly fired by the chief, that she gets reinstated over the chief's objections. That means our discipline system is broke. And you can have the best policies you can and the best training, but if you can't hold police officers accountable, then you can't have effective reforms. So the one area that if I were the city of Seattle or the Department of Justice, I would focus on more is, has the discipline system made the changes they need to make? And one of the problems is, is that there is a pending legislation that changes that discipline system. We're in the process of hiring a new head of the discipline system, and they're creating another thing called the Inspector General's Office. Until those two things are in place and have a period of time that reviews it, I don't know whether we're there or not. So I think even if the judge finds it, if I'm the mayor, one thing I'm going to be watching and watching carefully is to make sure that discipline system actually can hold police accountable. Because if you can't, it will undermine all of the other reforms that you have. So would you have written that letter that Mayor Burgess and City Attorney Holmes wrote? I would have written that letter, but with the paragraph saying that, you know, as basically a warning to both the court and the federal monitor that if you look at the strict language of the consent decree, I think they're in full and effective compliance. But if you look at the spirit and what we're trying to accomplish with police reform, there is this big piece called police discipline that could undermine it all. So I want to make sure that that was on the judge's radar. And any names for police chief? You know, I really hope that Kathleen O'Toole stays because I think we're in this critical stage of reforms. I think that she has been the right chief for the right time and that it would be somewhat disruptive to change. If she does leave, I would do a national search. I would, of course, look at internal candidates as well. But it is one of the biggest uh, big city police jobs there is in the country. Because of the police reforms, this department is viewed as a very, very desirable posting. And so I think we would have a lot of candidates for it. 
Ms. Durkin, um, voters are in part hiring you because of your good judgment. And um, you were rather late in calling for Mayor Murray's resignation after his cousin spoke out. And I wonder, in retrospect, should you have called for it earlier? Let me explain why that is, because I think I made the right choice based on the reasons I did it. I have represented women who have experienced sexual abuse and assault over the years. I represented Carrie Tupper when she made her claims against Brock Adams and saw how it devastated her life just to have to bring those complaints forward. I represented women who have had to testify against their accusers, both in court and at trial, and knows what it does to them and to their families. And so I have seen families ripped apart by that. But I have also sat next to people who were accused of things they did not do. You know, as a lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer, I sat next on one trial where at the end of the trial, the jury apologized to my client. But that apology did not put his life back together or his family's life back together. And so it's why I believe so deeply in due process in our system of justice. I believe that there is a place where we weigh whether there's truth or untruth. People can make individual judgments, but if you are judging as a public official, I think that you have to say, look, I don't have the facts from 30 years ago to make a judgment. Most people who called for the resignation had made a personal judgment on the facts. They weren't doing it for any other reason because they decided they believed people. I think that due process says everyone, we have to have a system for weighing that. For me, the judgment was, could he continue to be an effective mayor? And it was clear at the end he could not. He was being engulfed, and every decision he was making was being engulfed. And then I want to add one other thing that I think gets lost by many of the media, but which I have said from the start, and I said to former Mayor Murray, whatever you do, do not demean the victims. I have sat by people that that happened to. It re-victimizes uh, re them. They did the wrong thing on that front. I think they did the wrong thing. That's a different discussion on whether I was able to make a judgment on what did or did not happen 30 years ago. I'd like to answer this too. Okay. Challenge. Um, so believing in due process is one thing, but sitting there watching the mayor use his public office and his political power to demean and belittle the victims that came forward is a completely different decision. And that is why I called for Mayor Murray to step down earlier, because he was not using his office responsibly. He demeaned and belittled every single victim, was re-traumatizing every single survivor of sexual assault in this city, and it was inappropriate and it was abuse of his public power. I believe you can tell a lot about a person by whose side they stand on when the marginalized try to get justice from the powerful. And this was an issue in our city where the elite were circling the wagons around Ed Murray to protect his legacy, to protect him from scrutiny, while he was using his authority in a very unjust way. And I called for him to step down because I believe that was inappropriate, and I stand by that decision to call for him to step down earlier rather than later when the fifth victim came forward. How many victims does it take? It's hard to stand up as a survivor of sexual abuse and report the abuse. And I think we have to respect the victims and the difficulty they had and not demean and belittle them. I do just want to correct one record on this. 
is she fudges the timeline just a little bit because when the allegations were first made and the response the mayor gave, which was completely inappropriate, and there was an editorial in The Stranger by a woman who called him out on that, she was still standing by him. It wasn't until later. So I agree, she called for it before I did, but there was, there was not, it was not the first instance. Um, and I would say that she did it for political reasons. Um, I think that what happened in this city was terribly painful for many people. It was painful for people who knew the mayor, for people in the gay and lesbian community who, who thought that here was the person who was uh, the, the model of how you could fight for equality and still lead, and then have that to happen to be the worst stereotype of a gay man that there is, be played out on the stage, is incredibly hurtful. And to the victims themselves, terribly, terribly hurtful to decades later have it replayed, decades later. And I saw that same kind of pain in the women and men that I'd represented over the years. And I believe, and I will say, I'm sorry for that. And I made it clear from the beginning, please don't relitigate their victimization. We will be, um, Lindsay's gonna be going around collecting your questions, so please pass your cards to the end of the row for those of you who wanna ask a question of the candidates. I, I did call for him to drop out immediately, and then as soon as it became clear that he was abusing his public office to demean and belittle victims, cast doubt on their stories, cast doubt on all victims, saying we shouldn't believe young people, we shouldn't believe his cousin because it was based on a family feud, we shouldn't believe, believe the young men who were troubled foster children because they had a history of uh, criminal behavior and drug use. I, I think that was victim blaming and I called for him to step down once it became clear that he was engaging in that activity. It wasn't politically motivated, it's because I have many friends who are survivors of sexual assault. And hearing their stories and watching what it was doing to them and watching what a just and fair and responsible leader would do compared to what he was doing, that's why I decided to ask for him to call, step down. This one's specific to you, Ms. Moon. Um, when your family sold its business, a lot of the employees ended up getting laid off. As an advocate for labor, how do you explain what happened there? Yeah. So my father wanted me to take over the family business right at the time I was deciding I wanted to go back to school because cities were my passion and my profession. Or, or cities were my passion, I wanted to make them my profession. So we had set up an employee ownership plan where the employees owned 30% of the company. And we took, because I didn't want to run the company, he decided, okay, I'll sell it. And he looked for uh, someone to buy the company who promised they would keep the company going in the town. We took the offer, we had many offers, we didn't take the highest offers because they wouldn't make that promise. And they ended up not keeping that promise, which is unfortunate and frustrating. They moved the factory to California and only one of the employees in Michigan wanted to actually go to California, so only one went. But the rest got a pretty decent check from being employee owners. It was basically, if you were fully vested, meaning you were there for at least five years, you got a paycheck that was, I mean, you got a, a payout that was roughly equivalent to a year's salary. So a lot of the employees used that to start their own businesses, go back to school, pay for their children to go to school. So while yes, we would have liked it if they had kept the factory open in Buchanan, that didn't happen, but there was a silver lining because the employees were part owners of the company. 
Do I get a respond to that? Under, under that rules? You can use get, your challenge card. I have, an, I have a So card. we don't get to both answer the same question? Okay. <laughs> Not about your family's factory, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> but David, in all fairness, I mean, every other question we both responded to, but if- You can use the challenge card. Okay. No, no, we're good. Okay. <laughs> Um, my question for you, Ms. Durkin, is in a city that's hyper-conscious of criminal justice reform, as a prosecutor who has gone after, went after medical marijuana shops and protesters, what do you, how can you assure that you will be an advocate for criminal justice reform? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would point out that in the 30-plus career that I had as a lawyer, only five of them were involved prosecution. The rest of the time I was actually a criminal defense lawyer. And as U.S. Attorney, we never, ever, and I never would have, used our force against protesters. I think the case that you're referring to is a case where, um, let me back up. So I'm a little corny about this, but I believe deeply in our courts. Um, I mean, how many people in here were actually really excited that it was our federal court that said to Donald Trump, your ban is illegal and I'm gonna stop you? We were thrilled. <laughs> And the rule of law means something. And then we were even more thrilled when the Ninth Circuit said, you know what, Judge Robart's right. So I believe in courts and I believe in the rule of law. And what we saw in the May Day riots was that a person smashed the courthouse doors and threw in a lit flare while people were working there. It's a federal crime and we investigated it. And I think that we should investigate that. But we had protests throughout the five years over here, usually on the courthouse steps. Sometimes my employees were down there protesting too. So I think First Amendment rights are critical. I can't tell you how many marches and protests I've been involved in since I could walk. I mean, that was a rule in our house. If you can walk, you can doorbell and you can march. Um, and I've done it throughout my life. So I would never, ever, and never did use the authority of our office to go after protesters. Second, on medical marijuana, if you look at the cases themselves, actually, when we brought those investigations, there were no legal dispensaries in the state of Washington, non-zero. All of the dispensaries were actually illegal because there was medical marijuana for personal use. So we looked out there and we knew that there might be a chance that legal marijuana was coming, but it would never work if the system got overtaken by moonshiners. And at the time, we had more illegal dispensaries than there were 7-Elevens in King County, literally. So we worked with state and local officials and decided how do we make sure that we, we draw the margin so we actually can keep things in a structure where we can move this forward. And the people that we investigated and prosecuted were people who either had guns on the premises were selling illegal drugs like meth, cocaine, and heroin out the back door, or had other problems associated with their facility where it was not anything to do with patients. They were just using the green cross to protect themselves and their greed. So I wanna get in a question here before we go to the audience questions on the homeless. Should the homeless be allowed to live in city parks? Ms. Durkin. We should not have homeless people living in unsanctioned encampments in the city, whether they're in city parks or other places. I think we have to continue to work with outreach workers and the like to make sure we do this in a compassionate way. We had an entire um, evening on this, um, and I think it is a difficult question, but 
you know, I've spent so much time on this issue, working with people experiencing homelessness, talking to providers, talking to the people who are trying to build the housing, supportive housing and the like. Last week, I went out with the navigation team, which is a team of Seattle Police Department officers and the social workers whose job it is is to go and engage people in the um, unsanctioned encampments to see if they can connect them with services and move them to somewhere more safe. Our unsanctioned encampments are horrible places that we should not let people live. They are filled with human waste, needles. They, they are really, I mean, in any other circumstances, anyone in the city would say, we can't let people live there. And so what we have to do is focus more on what is the short-term solutions we have? How much more emergency shelter can we have? That's why I, between the two of us, have only proposed specific solutions to get both short-term emergency shelter in every part of the city and do it within the first year that I'm mayor and more long-term affordable housing. But let me just finish the story. So I am out with this outreach team. And we are in this encampment that is like the encampments that you see if you go on the city website that are, are, are terrible places for people living. And the police officer is spending time after time in the tents with these people. But it's in a really dangerous location, a really dangerous location. So I said to him, I said, you know, why is it that we're, you're decided at this point, even though you have places for some of these people to go, that they are staying? And he said, well, because there's a woman who has lived here off and on who delivered a baby two weeks ago. She was at Harborview and left, and she and her baby both need services, and we are trying to find her so we can give her services. That's the kind of work that they're doing. Um, and it's wrong to, to describe that as sweeps, because that is not a sweep. Same question. Should the homeless be allowed to live in city parks, short-term or long-term? So there are 400 unsanctioned encampments in the city because we have not done our job to provide people a place to come inside. 90% of the folks experiencing homelessness outside would come inside if we gave them a place that met their needs. We need to focus our resources on building low barrier shelters, on tiny house villages, on sanctioned encampments, and making the shelters that we do have safer and more usable for the folks who have chosen not to go them because, to them because either you have to leave at 6 a.m. or there's no place to store your belongings or they have bed bugs. We have a problem with insufficient shelter facilities, so we need to focus on that first and then go to folks who are sleeping outside with an answer for their problems and say, we have a place for you. We need to go with a social service person, an outreach worker who can help them get the services they need and come inside. Because what we're doing now, I think you know the, the PR team likes to sell it as humane and not sweeps, but it is sweeps. We go to people, we say, a cop says, hey, you need to leave this location. And the person feels threatened and feels unsafe and feels like they better do what the cop says. But two days later, they are back in a different unsanctioned encampment. So we need to bring people inside. We need to get them the services they need and stop doing the sweeps, which is basically pushing them from place to place, throwing their lives further into chaos, sometimes, especially for women, pushing them into a place that feels more unsafe and more insecure than the place they were in. So stop the sweeps focus on services and building places for people to come inside, and then use a social service approach to bring them inside. 
That said, the priority should be for people who are sleeping in very unsafe places on the edge of a highway or in public parks near where kids are. Those would be the priorities for the folks to bring inside first. But folks living in the parks, yes Until or no? Until we have places to bring them inside, let them be because that's the place they've chosen as the most safe place for themselves, but focus all our resources on finding places to bring them inside. Okay, now we're gonna to move to questions from the audience. Thank you for asking questions. The first one is for both of you, and I'll direct it first to Ms. Moon. As Seattle's first female mayor in more than 90 years. Yay! <laughs> how would you work to raise the status of women in the city? And secondly, would you consider making all employers offer paid family medical leave? Yes, I would consider that. It would need to be something that we paid into a fund like you do with unemployment insurance where everybody pays in and then folks who need to access it, access it when it's their time. But yes, I would consider paid family leave for all employers above a certain size, or, or maybe all employers. We have to see how we can work out the program. So I have already put forward a, a proposal for gender pay equity. In our tech sector, women are paid 70 cents on the dollar. In the rest of our economy, it's roughly the same, and it gets lower for women of color who are Latino, and even lower for women of color who are African American. So for all employers above 100 employees, I would collect pay data, anonymous pay data, but make sure we are comparing across race and across gender to make sure that we identify this problem because no one thinks they do it. They always think, oh, I have great intentions, of course I'm being fair. You have to show them the data of it's not working the way you think it is and, and then develop solutions with employers about how to achieve equity. I graduated from engineering school in 1985 and I am ashamed to say that is the peak year for women graduating from engineering because the tech environment is so hostile that women don't want to be there and we absolutely have to solve this problem. We need to look at a freelancer's bill of rights for all the women who do freelancing. There are a lot of um, situations where people get stiffed, people don't have contracts and they have pay disputes, so we need a freelancer's bill of rights and gender pay equity and a system for paid family leave across all employers, yes. Ms. Durkin? Yeah, the, I think the question was how would you do it? How would you, uh, first of all, how would you uh, work to raise, raise the status of women in the city? And, and would you consider making all employees offer paid family medical leave? Yes, so first how would I, how would I work to raise the status of women? Relentlessly. Um, we, it's ridiculous in this day and age that we are still fighting equal pay. I mean, it is, it's remarkable and it's only getting worse. I mean, when I was, do, when I was U.S. Attorney, one of the hats I got to wear was I was head of the cybercrime efforts and cyber strategy for the Department of Justice. So I would visit a lot of the high-tech companies, not just here but throughout the country. And I think it's the silicon ceiling. Because if you look at those companies of the future, they have women in the lower levels, but all the upper echelons are men. And so I, number one, would start with the city because the city has also had a problem with how they pay women. I would promote women and pay them more, and particularly women of color. Then I would challenge all of the employers to do better and start keeping good data. One of the reasons we don't know how bad it is is because the companies don't keep the data they need to keep. So I think we have to relentlessly be working for equal pay for equal job because in this day and age, it should be, and I think it's great that one of us is going to be mayor. <laughs> okay. 
Another audience question. Although it is the decision of the city council, do you think city taxpayers should pay to defend city council member Shama Sawan's inflammatory rhetoric? It's Durkin first. Short answer is yes. And here's why. It goes back to the question that you're saying is free speech. But free speech for an elected official is really important. When an elected official is talking in their official capacity versus their personal capacity, they need to be able to say what they believe is the truth for their city and what they believe is the truth for any issue facing the city without worrying that some power is going to come after them. If they're talking in their personal capacity, it's a completely different thing. So I think the hard thing with this case was when Council Member Sawant was speaking, was she speaking with her hat as a city council member on, which this she was, then we have a duty to defend her. If she was not speaking with her councilman hat on, then we don't. So I think the second, the one of them has been decided, the second one hasn't, and that's the one related to the police officers and calling them murderers. So I think that they will have to decide, was she exercising speech as an elected official? And if so, we've got to protect that because we do not want to have a society or system where somebody who represents us is afraid to say the truth because someone will come after them. Your take, Ms. Moon, you're shaking your head. Well said, I agree with that. I'd also add that I think Shama Sawant has played a very important role in our city's dialogue. We had a system in city council where people were fairly narrowly in lockstep with what downtown power and money was hoping for, and she changed the debate completely by staking out a position way to the left, and all of a sudden we started having a much richer dialogue in our city about what was possible, what was just, how do we create a society and an economy that works for the well-being of everybody. I don't always agree with her proposals, but I really appreciate the courage that she's taking to talk about alternative ways of running a city. And I think since she has come to power, the Democratic Socialists of America have really started to be active in this city, and we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, and the Block the Bunker, and the People's Party, and the No New Youth Jail activism. All these things, I think, have been, she has sort of helped usher in this new dialogue about how to build a more just and more uh, just a, a more just city where we share power and we listen to one another and we look outside of the downtown power elite to come up with solutions. So I really appreciate the role she's playing in our city. Another audience question. <clears throat> what is your view slash strategy on upzoning single family neighborhoods to increase the housing supply in the city? And we'll start with you. So I think the top down approach of the HALA uh, process was a, was a major flaw. In our city, we all believe we have a right to shape our own destiny. We believe in the right to the city, not as a legal right, but as a moral right and a political right. We get to help shape our destiny. And so this you know, group of experts in a closed door room coming out saying, we have the answer that shall be imposed from on high. Seattleites don't like that. They want to be at the table. They want to talk constructively about what we can do together. So I think we need to, yes, keep going with the mandatory housing affordability up zones that are in motion, but we also need to look at other tools in the toolkit. Should we be doing, you know, mother-in-laws, duplexes, stacked flats, row houses, triplexes? You know, we need to look at all the tools and sit down 
city, neighborhood together with professional planner and talk about here are all the tools, here are the growth targets for your neighborhood. How do you want your neighborhood to grow in a way that preserves the culture and the character and what you love about your neighborhood? Because one neighborhood might want to upzone their commercial strip. Another neighborhood might want to focus on row houses and backyard cottages and mother-in-law apartments. And we need to involve citizens and neighborhood groups in shaping their destiny together. Do you think that would just create a lot of process? How do, you, how do you get anything done with all those conversations? I think we can do that quickly. I think if you were here in the 90s when we did neighborhood planning, it worked pretty well. Neighborhoods got up to speed quickly. We looked at all the solutions. We had professional experts there to guide us. And we came up with pretty good solutions at the neighborhood level that then everybody was bought into. And so we were able to move forward a lot of change by bringing people to the table together. So I think we can do it, and we have to run the process really well to make it work. And same question to you, Mr. So I think uh, land use issues, sometimes we think about it as a one-size-fits-all, that there's one type of zoning it can fit. But if you really look at the single-family neighborhoods throughout Seattle, um, they're very different from one another. The single-family neighborhoods in West Seattle, Capitol Hill, you know, Crown Hill, Ballard, whatever, they are much different. And sometimes the lot sizes are different. Sometimes the historical configurations are different. So I think the first thing we have to say is there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all on how we deal with single-family zoning. We're really going to have to do this sector by sector in the city, which they have been doing. Second is we have to involve, I think, the neighborhoods in driving some of the conversations, not on if we are going to get density, because every part of the city has to get more density. We're growing. Every part has to grow. But if we look, for example, first at those urban village parts of single-family neighborhoods, which were designed years ago to take the density, let's start there. Let's start with the density that was designed before and move more density in those areas. Then the other thing is we look at is as we're building out Sound Transit 3 and, and, sound, and all the light rail stations, those often are going to be in or around single-family neighborhoods. They are a great opportunity to have a new kind of vital neighborhood right around the transit. It's called transit-oriented development. And what we want if we squint our eyes, look into the future, we want those transit stations to be a place where there's every kind of housing, low income, middle income, market rate, and everyone's mixing together. Plazas where there's cafes, people can bike and walk. So I think that there isn't a one size fits all, but then we could add more density today to single family neighborhoods if we made it easier to permit mother-in-law apartments and backyard cottages. And backyard cottages that really are the backyard cottages, not the monstrosity that is bigger than the house that was ever there to begin with. Um, and if you do that, if you allow people to do that and have a quick system to do it, you know, ideally, and this probably isn't possible short term, but I think we could move in this direction, say to the single family neighborhood, all right, if your lot is a 10,000 square foot lot, if you have a cottage that meets one of these three designs, you can have a permit in 30 days. Um, and then you avoid the costs, you avoid the fees, you avoid the architects. Sorry about that, Mark. Um, and you end up having, I think, more density almost overnight. This question is directed to both of you, and I'll first address it to Ms. Durkin. Um, how do you help to make sure that Seattle will live up to the Paris Climate Agreement and promote development of technology that allows us to address the climate crisis? It's, thank you, whoever wrote that, thank you. 
Um, we have such pressing problems on affordability and others issues. Climate just isn't getting the time that I think that it merits in this campaign because all the others are so oppressive. We have to lead on climate. This president has made clear not only has he abandoned the obligation, he's fighting it. As, you know, as we're speaking, they are dismantling the EPA. Um, they're going backwards on everything we care about. So Seattle has to lead in a number of ways. Number one, we have to lead and join again the global cities that are fighting for climate change. Number two, we need to get more things right here in Seattle that will move the needle on our own climate goals. That would include, for example, I've proposed that we electrify the city fleet. It will take a while to get there, but if you look at where our climate um, problems come from in Seattle, it's mainly two places, automobiles and efficiency of buildings. So we need to move from having carbon-based cars to getting people on transit as much as possible first. First choice is transit, 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 whether it's light rail or buses. But then with the cars that are left, we need to start moving people to electric cars, taxi cabs, Uber, Lyft, city fleet. We will make a dent immediately in our carbon emissions if we do that. And if we do it right, we can get some of those private companies to pay for the charging infrastructure in every part of this town because that's one of the biggest obstacles and a real equity issue because there's parts of this town that aren't built for charging infrastructure or they can't afford it. The second thing we have to do is increase the efficiency of buildings and use smart, innovative tools that we have. For example, we have right now, I don't know if people know it, there's this building called the Weston Building, which was right on 6th Avenue, right by the Weston Hotel. It's one of the few buildings that's deemed critical infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security because it has so many um, computers and switches in it. It gets hot, very hot. So as they add all the switching capability, they've had cooling tower after cooling tower on the roof of the building. Then they went to the building next door. Then finally, an engineer at McKinstry said, why are we getting rid of all this great energy? So now they pipe it across the street to the Amazon buildings, and it's one of the things heating the biosphere. So we can do, we have data centers, we have things like that. We've just got to get more innovative. So get people out of their cars, get them onto transit, electrify the vehicles, get more efficiency, and we will move the dials and then lead the country on climate. Ms. Moon. So I have put out a really aggressive plan to get to 100% renewable energy by 2040 in our city because we have incredible environmental values here. We invent the technology here. We know how to do this. We started the Mayor's Climate Initiative under Mayor Greg Nichols 12 years ago to get 1,200 other cities to say, the, country, the federal government is not leading. We need to take a leadership role at the city level. And we need to recharge that commitment to Seattle being the leader and the unifier across cities and show the world how to do this. So yes, we need to focus on transit and compact growth because the number one source of emissions in our city is from the transportation sector. We need to make it easier to walk, to bike, to take transit and not have to bring your car everywhere. And that means shifting the way we invest our transportation dollars in SDOT. We need to look at district energy everywhere. We do have a district energy system downtown where we are recycling heat from one building and using it as electricity. But we need to do that throughout the whole city. There are a lot of smart people who are working on that kind of infrastructure. We need to invest and incentivize it. We need to focus on 
building standards because the best way to get buildings to be more energy efficient is to write better building standards and building codes to, and then create incentives to speed the delivery. And we know that that's one of the places where we can create good jobs for people from low income and most disadvantaged climate impacted neighborhoods and have a win-win where we are inviting those folks to have the training to do the jobs and get the jobs to do all the energy retrofits we need. And then last, we need to really talk about incentives to innovation. We invent so much stuff here, but we are getting lapped by Portland, by Vancouver, by other cities who have made it a lot, who have motivated the building sector to really innovate and try new things. We only have two buildings that have used the green building challenge in our city, and we should be increasing the incentive, and we should have 100, if not 500 buildings that are pursuing innovations to really create deeper energy efficiency in the built environment. So there's a lot of things we can do, and I am ready to lead that. It is such an important uh, part of our values and part of our future to be a leader in the, the clean energy economy. Real quickly here, be, before we run out of time, um, this person asked about the Sonics or Soto Arena. The city seems to be moving very much toward Key Arena and away from Chris Hansen's proposal. Uh, the person who wrote this thought the Soto location was far better. What do you think? What will you do about that? I'm focused also on making, actually, no, I'm focused on bringing the Sonics back first because we love the Sonics. We need a basketball team here. But I think we need to look at how to make Seattle Center Arena work. It's a public facility the city already owns, and it would be great if we could make it work. But we have to look at how do we invest in sufficient transit because it simply won't work if everybody who comes to an event is bringing a car. So we have to make sure that we're updating the monorail, we are increasing rapid ride service, we're doing something smart and fancy with satellite parking lots and shuttle services because we simply can't but do you Make favor you favor Key Arena or do you if favor we can Soto? Get, if we can get the transportation system to work, and if we have the right, if we make sure that we are supporting small and local business around the arena and not inviting everybody to come inside for dinner and to spend all their money. So those two things, if we can get them right, I favor Key Arena or Seattle Center Arena because I am so concerned about protecting industrial land. We absolutely have to keep industrial land. It's a precious resource. Family wage jobs happen there. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. So we need to try to make Seattle Center work. Ms. Durkin. It, all the um, Soto people are mad because I've been virulently and aggressively neutral. Um, <laughs> and, and here's why is I have a couple criteria. Number one, it can't cost the public money. Enough of the public paying for stadiums. Um, <laughs> And so that's my number one criteria. The second is transportation, and each of the arenas have real transportation challenges. The one at the key arena, of course, Queen Anne, particularly with the up zone, is going to be a transportation nightmare. But Soto has some real transportation problems, and particularly those that would affect the port in our, in our freight mobility. So those are the two issues. And the third is... If you had to decide tomorrow, which one would you pick? I wouldn't. Because the mayor has to wait for it to play out in the council. And we don't know enough about the negotiations of the MOU right now. And so I think it's very important to make sure that we get let that negotiating team squeeze as much as they can out of each side and then decide which one the public's going to benefit from. 
because there are pros and cons. Whether we do the arena at Key Arena or not, one of the big benefits to that location is the Seattle Center needs an upgrade. Um, it needs a serious upgrade, and it would be nice to find a way to pay for it with other people's money. Um, <laughs> but I think that we still have to let it play out more because Chris Hansen put on the table something very intriguing about Key Arena, so I think we just need to let it play out. This, um, this reader's question or viewer's question sort of gets at something that first came up on this stage actually uh, a month or so ago. Do the homeless have a right to housing, i.e., do they have a right to live in public? We sort of got at the public parks question, but um, I think the person is specifically re referring to New York's ordinance that guarantees a right to housing. And then on top of that, um, do the homeless have a right to live in cars and RVs in our neighborhoods? Um, start with you, Ms. Moon. So today, there's a sweep going on right now with the veterans who are getting services from the VA hospital and parking in RVs on Beacon Avenue. And I think it's unconscionable. They keep that area safe. They are not a threat to anybody. They are very poor. They are getting services at the VA hospital. Why is our city pushing them out of that location? It just is unjust and unfair. So I believe that, you know, when we answered this question before, I didn't understand the question was a specific, do you support New York City's right to housing ordinance for Seattle? I don't support that. But I think we have to look at, if we believe clean water is a right, if we believe access to healthcare is a right, if we believe reliable electricity is a right, certainly we can believe that housing is a right for people. <clears throat> and I mean, excuse me, I mean it as a moral and a political right, not necessarily a legal right, but we should be looking to solutions that give everybody access to housing. And we have a homelessness crisis in this city because we have not addressed the root causes of homelessness. We have a housing affordability crisis, we've de defunded mental and behavioral health services, we have the 50th worst state for mental health services, we should all be ashamed of that. We need to get funding into services. We need to be building a lot more affordable housing. We need to double down on efforts for temporary shelter because winter's coming. And we need to do everything we can as a society to provide housing for folks who can't afford housing in this overheated housing market that we have now. So let's put it as a top priority. Priority. Let's make sure that we are providing housing to families and to women with children especially and focus in on that first as we keep working towards having a place for everybody to come inside. I think this is a really important question and one that really defines who we are. We are one of the most prosperous cities in the richest country maybe since the history of time. And I go back to what Father Sundberg said about Seattle U's mission and, and we're talking about tonight about social justice. The people experiencing homelessness are some of the most impoverished people who need the most support of anyone in our city. And we have to do better by them. I don't believe that we want a legal right because what we have seen in the cities like New York is it ends up in litigation and overtaxing the system and not getting the right services to the people you need. I've also said in this campaign is I will not talk about raising taxes until I can assess the budget and make sure that we really need them. But I have put down a marker in every room and I will put it down here too. The one area where I think I will have to come back if I'm mayor and say we need more money and more taxes, and I hope I can do it with King County because it's a regional problem, is more money 
for addiction services and mental health treatment. We are suffering as a city and the people experiencing homelessness are suffering the most. We have an opiate addiction that is raging on our streets, raging on our streets. One of the most effective treatments is methadone. But in the city of Seattle, there is one clinic, one. And it can only treat 1,400 people. That's wrong. And so we need to get to the root causes, but we also need to be able to help those people who are suffering the most from mental health treatment and addiction services and get them the help they need. Well, that wraps it up. Um, I'd like to thank the audience for asking, uh, coming up with some really wonderful questions. I'm sorry we couldn't ask them all. And I'd also like to thank the candidates for giving so much of yourselves and, and being such outstanding citizens. And uh, I know you're going through grueling schedules right now. And we really appreciate that you could come tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Great audience. That's it for this extra from Speakers Forum, featuring a conversation with Seattle mayoral candidates, Carrie Moon and Jenny Durkin. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording, and thanks for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>